I'm going to Louisiana, my true love for to see. It rained all night the day I left, the weather it was dry. The sun's so hot I froze to death, Susanna, don't you cry. Oh, Susanna, oh, don't you cry for me. I come from Alabama with the banjo on my knee. Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week I continue to look at the end of Stephen King's decades-long journey to the Dark Tower with a novel that I consider to be the second part of a trilogy that will conclude with Book 7, The Dark Tower, a novel that focuses on the strength of a beloved member of the Quartet, the titular Susanna. <clears throat> Now, this is a novel that I've been thinking a lot about lately, as it serves as a punchline to a joke that King told as far back when he published The Gunslinger, when Walter Mox rolled in the Golgotha. I don't know if you remember, but at one point, Walter tells Roland of how previous civilizations had mastered science and exploration, traveling to the moon and curing cancer. He writes, Gunslinger. Our fathers conquered the disease which rots, which we call cancer, almost conquered aging, went to the moon, and made or discovered a hundred other marvelous baubles. But this wealth of information produced little or no insight. There were no great odes to the wonders of artificial insemination. There were no great odes to the wonders of artificial insemination, that is, until Stephen King published The Song of Susanna, a chapter in the epic that revolves around artificial insemination used to take down our quartet. I don't know if he meant to do it, but that has been stuck in my mind, and I just couldn't wait to get to this, to just point it out that, yeah, back in the pages of The Gunslinger, King, through the, the character of Walter, made a very distinct point that stuck with me. And then here, we get this really weird example of artificial insemination that plays a major plot point in the story of our characters. So yeah, King wound up doing it. He wrote his ode to artificial insemination, and I love it. So here's the deal with Susanna, or the song with Susanna, I should say. And I feel bad because this is going to be... Um, it's definitely not going to be as long as my Wolves of the Kala review. It's going to be about half that length. And I wanted to have a lot to say about the Song of Susanna. Because basically, I, unfortunately, I don't have a lot to say about this book. Which really is too bad. Now, I don't remember, you know, when I sat down to, to reread it for the purposes of this podcast, I didn't remember a lot about the Song of Susanna as a book. I, I remember some things. I remember them going to Maine. I, I remember learning about the, the story of Mia, but I didn't remember the, the particulars, the specific points to Song of Susanna. And the reason I don't remember that much is because there's not much to remember. Uh, when it first came out in June, I believe, of 2004, I mean, I, I just devoured it basically in a day. And then I was just left wanting for the entire summer until September of 2004 when The Dark Tower came out. And I enjoyed it. But to be perfectly honest, upon my first read of Susanna and now this, this, this reread of Susanna, I, I mean, nothing really happens by design. This is just a placeholder for um, 
for the the events of the of the Dark Tower. So I mean, all the big stuff is saved until the the last book, and King just really. I don't know. I don't know if he he sat down and he wrote this or if he just wrote the whole damn thing and chunked it up into three parts. But this, it doesn't it doesn't flow. It, it, it doesn't feel like a story because it doesn't really have a beginning, middle, and end. Everything that ends, ends in the Dark Tower. I, I mean, we leave off on three distinct cliffhangers in The Song of Susanna. We have Jake... And Callahan heading off into the Dixie Pig. We have Susanna about to give birth to Mordred. We have Roland and Eddie making their way um, through Maine. And then we actually have four, which and the fourth is, is the biggest one. We have Stephen King dying in the, the accident. And then it leaves. It leaves off. And it will pick up um, in, in the Dark Tower Book 7 with the assault on the Dixie Pig, which is a great scene. But think about what it would have been like if it ended here. Like, what if it ended um with the death of father callahan i mean it would change the the whole reading experience completely but i think that would have given this this novel a a bit more bite because this isn't really a novel like i said it's just a placeholder unfortunately and it's it's my least favorite of the dark tower novels simply because it suffers from being the middle child of wolves of the Colossus of susanna and the dark tower family but other than that, you know, I mean, it is what it is. It is a Dark Tower novel. It's a Dark Tower novel that came in hot off the heels of Wolves of the Kala and was getting us ready for the events of the Dark Tower. And I still loved reading it. And the purposes of this this particular episode, I'm going to mine it for all that it's worth. And I'll point out its highlights and I'll point out its low lows. And when I am done, we will be one step closer to the Dark Tower itself. So, With all of that said, let me read the Wikipedia summary so I have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. Taking place mainly in our world, New York and East Stoneham, Maine, this book picks up where Wolves of the Kala left off, with the Ka-Tet employing the help of the Man-Eye to open the magic door inside Doorway Cave. The Ka-Tet are split up by the magic door, or perhaps Ka, and sent to a different where and when in order to accomplish several essential goals pertaining to their quest towards the mysterious Dark Tower. Susanna Dean is partially trapped in her own mind by Mia, the former demon and now very pregnant mortal woman who had taken control of her body shortly after the final battle in Wolves of the Kala. Susanna and Mia, with their shared body mostly under the control of Mia, escape to New York of 1999 via the magic doorway in the doorway cave with the help of Black 13. Mia tells Susanna she has made a Faustian deal with the man in black, also known as Walter, to surrender her demonic immortality in exchange for being able to produce a child. Technically speaking, however, this child is the biological descendant of Susanna Dean and the gunslinger Roland. The gunslinger's seed was passed to Susanna through an elemental who had sex with both. I'm I'm gonna inject right here. I mean, it's just, this sounds crazy. This is crazy. And I go both ways with how crazy this is. Part of me loves how crazy it is, but at the same time, like, this is just, it's a little bit too much. But I'll work myself through this, through the rest of the the podcast episode. Anyway, the technical parentage of her child matters matters little to Mia, though, because the Crimson King has further promised her that she will have sole charge of raising the child Mordred for the first part of his life, the time before the critical destiny the Crimson King foresees for the child to come to pass. All Mia must do now is bring Susanna to the Dixie Pig restaurant to give birth to the child under the care of the Crimson King's men. 
Jake, Oi, and Father Callahan follow Susanna to New York City of 1999 in order to save Susanna from the danger Mia has put her in by delivering her into the custody of the Crimson King's henchmen. In addition, the Cotet fear the danger posed to Susanna by the child itself. Still unaware of the biological origins of this child, the Cotet believe that it may be demonic in some way and may have the ability to turn on and harm its mother or mothers. While in New York, Jake and Callahan also hide Black 13 in a locker in the World Trade Center. It is implied in the text that Black 13 will be destroyed when the towers fall in the September 11. So I'm sorry, September 11, 2001 attacks. While Susanna, Jake, and Callahan are in New York, Roland and Eddie Dean are sent by the Magic Doorway to Maine in 1977 with the goal of securing the ownership of a vacant lot in New York from its current owner, a man named Calvin Tower, who first appears in the Wastelands as the proprietor of the Manhattan Restaurant of the Mind, where he sells Jake a copy of Charlie the Choo Choo, a book that turned out to be important to the Cotet's quest. The Gunslingers have seen and felt the power of a rose that is located in the vacant lot and suspect it to be some sort of secondary hub to the universe, or even possibly a representation of the Dark Tower itself. The Cotet believe that the tower itself is linked to the rose and will be harmed or fall if the rose is harmed. The reason for this being the Dark Tower and the rose are somehow connected, the two images very similar in the series. Calvin Tower is in hiding in Maine from Enrico Balazar's men, who have almost succeeded in strong-arming him into selling him the lot, selling them a lot. Tower has so far resisted with the help of Eddie Dean. Upon their arrival in Maine, the gunslingers find themselves thrown into an ambush by these same men, Jack headed by Jack Andalini. Uh, spearheaded by Jack and Lee. Balazar's men were tipped off on Roland and Eddie's potential whereabouts by Mia, who hoped that they would dispose of the people she perceived as threats to her child. Roland and Eddie escaped the onslaught with the help of a crafty local man, John Cullum, who they deemed to be a savior put on their path through the machinations of Ka. After accomplishing their primary goal, the deeding of the vacant lot to the Tet Corporation, Roland and Eddie learn of the nearby location of Stephen King's home. They are familiar with the author's name after having um, coming in after coming into possession of a copy of his novel Salem's Lot in the Kala, and they decide to pay him a visit. King's presence and his relationship to the Dark Tower cause the very reality surrounding his main town to become thin. Strange creatures called walk-ins begin emerging and plaguing the community. The author is unaware of this and has never seen one, though most of the walk-ins have been appearing on his own street. During their visit to him, the gunslinger hypnotizes King and finds out that King is not a god, but rather a medium for the story of the Dark Tower to transmit itself through. Roland also implants in King the suggestion to start restart his efforts in writing the Dark Tower series, which he has abandoned of late, claiming that there are major forces involved that are trying to prevent him from finishing it. The Cotet are convinced that the success of their quest itself depends somehow on King's writing about it through the story. Meanwhile, in New York, Jake and Father Callahan prepare to launch an assault on the Dixie Pig, where Susanna is being held by the soldiers of the Crimson King. Their discovery of the scrimshaw turtle that Susanna has left behind for them gives them faint hope that they might succeed, though Jake is filled with a strong sense of dread, and neither Jake nor Callahan particularly expects to leave this place alive. The book ends with Jake and Callahan entering with weapons raised, and Susanna and Mia about to give birth in Fedek, a town in the Thunderclap. 
as a postscriptum. The reader becomes familiar with the Diary of Stephen King, the character, which encompasses the period from 1977 to 1999. The diary details King's writing of the first five books of the Dark Tower story. It is said that the character, Stephen King, dies on June 19, 1999. Analysis First stanza, Beamquake Two things. First, I like how King spices up things by switching stanza with chapter to adhere to the theme of the title itself. Secondly, how awesome is the chapter title, Beamquake? That's badass. King picks up immediately after the events of Wolves. Immediately. We aren't building up to any sort of momentum here. The momentum already is there. There's a bit of a drained feeling with our heroes battle-shocked in the throes of a massive existential crisis and weary, but the urgency in finding Susanna is palpable. It's during this chapter when the end comes steadily closer as the experience as they experience the breaking of one of the beams, which brings about a number of questions. How long before everything ended? And how would it end? Would they hear the vast rumble of those enormous slate-colored stones as they fell? Would the sky tear open like a flimsy piece of cloth, spilling out the monstrosities that lived in the toad-ash darkness? Would there be time to cry out? Would there be an afterlife? Or would even heaven and hell be obliterated by the fall of the Dark Tower? He looked at Roland and sent a thought as clearly as he could. Roland, help us. And one came back, filling his mind with cold comfort. Ah, but comfort served cold was better than no comfort at all. If I can. Second stanza, The Persistence of Magic. While we don't know where Susanna is, Jake can sense her, and he can hear her screaming. In Wolves, King had crafted a story where we witnessed the breaking of the Cotet. While it looked like they managed to come back together, you have to ask if the secrets they held from each other functioned like cancer. You might beat it for a little bit, but here we see it coming back as Jake and Eddie both are giving into anger as they make their way to the doorway cave. Once they get to the doorway cave, the man-eye begin to prepare to send them through the inert door using magic of their own. And the breaking of the quartet continues as the characters mean to split up into different eras on different quests. As they prepare to leave, King just has to go and do it. If you guys are anything like me, you're a sap for this kind of stuff. And what I mean by this is the Oi and Jake scenes. In this case, Jake realizes that he'll have to leave Oi behind when he travels. And on page 37, King completely starts to stab us repeatedly in the heart and just get us ready. He's tenderizing our hearts for the, the ultimate uh, meal he's going to make of all of us. Jake reached into the front pocket of the poncho, lifted Oi out, set him on the powdery floor of the cave. He bent down hands planted just above his knees. Oi looked up, stretching his neck so that their faces almost touched. And Roland now saw something extraordinary. Not the tears in Jake's eyes, but those that had begun to well up in Oi's. A Billy Bumbler crying. It was the sort of story you might hear in a saloon as the night grew late and drunk. The faithful Bumbler who wept for his departing master. 
You didn't believe such stories, but never said so, in order to save brawling and perhaps shooting. Yet here he was, he was seeing it, and it made Roland feel a little bit like crying himself. And I'm going to speak for all of us. Ah, uh, yeah, me too. Was it just more bumbler imitation, or did Oi really understand what was happening? Roland hoped for the former, and with all of his heart. Oh, God. Uh, just because I'm a masochist, I'm going to keep on going. Oi, you have to stay with Cantab for a little while. You'll be okay. He's a pal. Tab! The bumbler repeated. Tears fell from his muzzle and darkened the powdery surface where he stood in uh, dime-sized drops. Roland found the creature's tears uniquely awful, somehow even worse than a child's might have been. Ache! Ache! No, I got a split, Jake said, and wiped at his cheeks with the heels of his hands. He left dirty streaks like war paint all the way up to his temples. No! Ache! I gotta. You gotta stay. You have to stay with Cantab. I'll come back for you, Oi. Unless I'm dead, I'll come back. He hugged Oi again, then stood up. Go to Cantab. That's him, Jake pointed. Go on now. You mind me. Ache! Tab! The misery in that voice was impossible to deny. For a moment, for a moment, Oi stood where he was. Then, still weeping, or imitating Jake's tears, Roland still hoped for that, the bumbler turned, tried a cantab, and sat between the young man's dusty shore boots. The door opens, first sucking Jake and Callahan and Oi into New York, and Eddie and Roland into Maine, where King teases the upcoming killing. Third stanza, Trudy and Mia. We're introduced to Trudy, who will function as our eyes through which we'll be reintroduced to Mia. And it's here once again we come upon the space where had stood the vacant lot, but in June of 1999 now stands a black glass tower. Through Judy's perspective, we see Susanna materialize out of thin air, and because Mia has fully taken control of Susanna, she somehow manages to grow legs. Except even more fantastically, she grows white legs. Mia steals Trudy's shoes, and throughout the day she tries to come to grips with the fact that she's been accosted by a supernatural event. Later, at the site where the vacant lot had been, she encounters the now-aged young man that Callahan had seen in Wolves of the Kala, and they discuss the good feelings from this spot. Fourth stanza, Susanna's Dogen. We get Susanna's perspective of events, recalling how Mia had brought her through the doorway cave, wrestled with Detta when she tried to remove Eddie's wedding ring. Here we learn that, Ed, that Mia isn't doing it out of cruelty, but out of preservation to help Eddie, help save Eddie so they don't get his scent, whatever they may be. It's an interesting situation because it's not presenting Mia as an evil entity like you'd expect and would have seen in other Stephen King possession tales like The Regulators and Dreamcatcher. Suzanne disappears into the safety of her mind, where she constructs her own version of the Dogen. Through the monitors, she sees as we do, for the first time, Mordred, whose eyes, she sees, are a piercing blue, the same eyes as Roland. It's the first time that King hints that her pregnancy is even weirder than we expected. Susanna manages to assert control over Mia, and with the help of Detta, they manage to come to an understanding with Mia. Fifth stanza, the turtle. Mia tells Susanna that if they're hoping to talk, they need to do so in the castle on the abyss, 
which we have visited in her dreamscapes in Wolves of the Kala. It's good to know that the image from the last book is expanded here and not used as a throwaway plot point. Mia teases that she's met Jake and Roland before, but doesn't get into it. It's a way for King to get his readers to keep wanting to go further. Suzanne discovers the turtle hidden in the bowling bag that houses Black 13. The turtle has immense powers of persuasion over people, including a businessman that Susanna goads into renting a room for a week, which gives Susanna and Mia a place to crash while they wait for the baby to be born. When they arrive in the hotel after Susanna has plenty of time to admire the growth of the world in the late 20th century, she discovers evidence that north-central positronics has begun to seep into this world. On their way to their room, the desk clerk warns them of the coming of the Crimson King, mentions Discordia for the first time, and once in their room, they have their opportunity to palaver. Sixth stanza, The Castle Allure. Here we travel deep into Endworld to Castle Discordia, with a description appropriate to its setting, beginning on page 102. Huge rock formations sawed at the sky and jostled in the distance. They glistened like alien bone beneath the glare of a savage sickle moon. Away from the glare of that lunar grin, a billion stars burned like hot ice. Among the rocks with their broken edges and gaping crevices, a single narrow path wound into the distance. Looking at it, Susanna thought that a party would have to travel that path in a single file and bring plenty of supplies, no mushrooms to pick along the way, no pokeberries either. And in the distance, dim and baleful, its source somewhere over the horizon, a dark crimson light waxed and waned. Harder the rose, she thought, and then no. No, not that. Forge of the King. She looked at the pulsing, sullen light with helpless, horrified fascination. Flex and loosen. Wax and wane. An infection announcing itself to the sky. We get a lot of setting description that fleshes out this horrible, blasted nightscape. We have the deserted town of Fedic, inhabitants dead by something called the Red Death a thousand years before, an outer wall that barricades the town and castle from an enormous crack in the earth which houses nightmarish creatures. At just over a hundred pages in, King drops the bomb that was ticking away when Susanna first spotted the baby's blue eyes in the Dogen, and that's that Roland is the father of her child. And Mia tells Susanna that the child will be named Mordred, in honor of King Arthur's son, and like Mordred of classic literature, the child will kill the father. Mia then launches into a creation myth of all world the state of Discordia, and how from it rose the tower and the beams. Or at least the beams. If the tower had stood before the beams, that's not really made clear. Regardless, magic fueled the beams, and when the magic receded, when the age of magic was replaced with the age of man, scientists tried recreating the magic using science, creating machines to power the beams. 
Mia slips in buzzwords left and right. She mentions how Arthur traded in his sword for a gun in one world, how Merlin retreated to a cave in the other. There's a reference to the superflu in the stand. She mentions that the Crimson King has been promised his own kingdom. Whether he promised himself or someone else promised it to him is unclear and left to the reader's interpretation. And she gets cutthroat when it comes to Roland and his quest on page 111. No, Mia went on, for he won't lie to his quartet unless he has to, tis his pride. What he wants of the tower is only to see it. Then she added, rather grudgingly, Oh, perhaps to enter it and climb to the room at the top his ambition may strike so far. He may dream of standing on its allure as we hunker on this one and chant the names of his fallen com comrades and of his line all the way back to Arthur Eld. But save it? No, good lady. Only a return of the magic could possibly save it. As you, self, as you yourself well know, your din deals only in lead. And then it's here where Mia first informs the reader of the great cosmic conspiracy against Roland Deschain, which I first reviewed in my Wastelands episode. And I still think that it's absurd. But first, let's walk it back a little bit. So, King here establishes the following. For every beam, there's a guardian on either end. So, 12 guardians all together. But for every beam, there's also a demon elemental. So, 6 all together. But each demon elemental is composed of both the male and the female, and one of the demon elementals first had sex with Roland in the Gunslinger, then with Susanna in the Wastelands, taking Roland's sperm in one book and transporting it to Susanna in another. This does not entirely add up, as the demon tried to get away from Susanna in the Wastelands. Something King mentions here, but mentioning it doesn't explain it, and you can't explain it. It's a contradiction. It's a continuity error. I'm able to forgive that because he's building a myth here. And if he wants to use the toys that are already in his sandbox, okay, that's fine. It's just that this seems too... I don't know... Connected? Convoluted? Unnecessary, I guess. I think that there's more than enough tension with Susanna possibly giving birth to a demon. Does the demon then have to be tied into the larger Dark Tower mythos? Does this demon have to have already encountered the gunslinger? Personally, I don't think so. And I think that this is forced inclusion into a larger narrative. Anyway, the pair get a telephone call from Richard Sayre, first glimpsed by Callahan in Wolves of the Kala. Sayre tells them they have to meet at the Dixie Pig, and what's worse, taunts Susanna that they've already been for Eddie and Roland, knowing where the other doorway leads them, all because Mia had spilled the beans to them. Seventh stanza, The Ambush. Roland's quick thinking saves his life and the life of Eddie from the ambush of the machine guns awaiting their arrival. And when it comes to King and his gunslinger epic, I'm never gonna get sick of a well-written gunfight which he gives us again um, on page 132. Beyond the pumps and the oiled dirt of the parking lot area was a paved country road, and on the other side of that little cluster of buildings painted a uniform gray. 
One was marked Town Office, one Stoneham Fire and Rescue. The third and largest was the Town Garage. The parking lot area in front of these buildings was also paved. Metaled was Roland's word for it. A number of vehicles had been parked there, one the size of a large buck wagon. From behind them came more than half a dozen men at full charge. One hung back and Roland recognized him, Enrico Balazar's ugly lieutenant, Jack Andalini. The gunslinger had seen this man die, gunshot and then eaten alive by carnivorous lobstrosities which lived in the shallow waters of the western sea, but here he was again. Because infinite worlds spun on the axle, which was the Dark Tower, and here was another of them. Yet only one world was true, only one where, when things were finished, they stayed finished. It might be this one, it might not be. In either case, there was no time to worry about it. Up on his knees, Roland opened fire, fanning the trigger of his revolver with the hard ridge of his right hand, aiming first at the boys with the speed shooters. One of them dropped dead on the country road's white center line with blood boiling out of his throat. The second was flung backward all the way to the road's dirt shoulder with a hole between his eyes. And it just continues from there. Uh, it's a great scene. The battle is spectacularly insane, especially when you realize it's taking place in a sleepy 1978 Maine. Bodies litter the streets. The town's store is getting torn to pieces, and a lumber truck overturns, spilling its logs everywhere. They manage to escape, but not before Ting King teases a major death. Either Eddie's or Roland, we're not sure. The death won't come until the Dark Tower, but it's coming soon. They are saved by a local man, John Cullum, who tells them about the mysterious walk-ins, visitors from Midworld passing through Keystone Earth. Eighth stanza, a game of toss. Back at John Cullum's house, Roland and Eddie discuss how there's deep reality within this Earth, and that whatever happens here has ramifications, and that whatever action they take it has to be the right one because there won't be any do-overs. And tensions rise as Eddie tells Roland to shut up a big moment in the series, because he needs to ask a question worth asking. He asks John Cullum if he knows the name Stephen King, and the answer is yes. What I love about this scene is that the three characters, one easygoing Mainer and two gunslingers, sit around discussing existential concepts about the books that have haunted their quest, Shardik, The Wizard of Oz, King Arthur, Charlie the Choo Choo, The Dogen, Salem's Lot, and Stephen King himself. All the while... The three of them just keep tossing a baseball back and forth to each other. Not only is this a nice touch, but it's also a fun little wink to the author because as they discuss Stephen King, what better object to have in this scene but a baseball? Eddie has a question about reality that I think we've all had at some point. He was having that through the looking glass, down the rabbit hole, off on a comet feeling again, and tried to ascribe it to the Perkadan. It wouldn't work. All at once he felt strangely unreal to himself, a shade you could almost see through as thin as, well, as thin as a page in a book. It was no help to realize that this world, lying in the summer of 77 on time's beam, seemed real in a way all the other wares and whens, including his own, did not. And that feeling was totally subjective, wasn't it? When he came right down to it, how did anyone know that they weren't a character in some writer's story or a transient thought in some bus-riding schmo's head or a momentary moat in God's eye? Thinking about such stuff was crazy. 
and enough such thinking could drive you crazy. And yet, data chum, data chi, not to worry, you've got the key. Keys, my specialty, Eddie thought. And then, King's a key, isn't he? Kala, Callahan, Crimson King, Stephen King. Stephen King, the Crimson King of this world? I just love that. I love that he starts asking the questions that so many of us have had since reading Insomnia. That King is a key on some level. I like that he refers to Kala and Callahan. I like that he's referencing the Crimson King and Stephen King. I like that question of whether or not the Stephen King is the Crimson King. And it doesn't matter that he's not. I like the fact that the question is raised because that is a question I had asked myself. Eddie presses the issue, trying to find out as much as he can about Stephen King and comes to realize that the walk-in started around the time that Stephen King had come to the area. Ninth stanza, Eddie bites his tongue. Column, Eddie and Roland ride to a place where Calvin Tower had been staying. The ride is a nice trip through a well-described main setting, and when they arrive, Roland addresses the fact that Eddie wants to kill Tower for his carelessness in the situation. While everyone has risked their lives to protect Tower, he's been treating his escape as a vacation. Eddie and Roland meet with Aaron Deepno, who tells them how frustratingly stubborn Calvin Tower is. When Tower arrives, there's such tension not knowing how Eddie, or Roland for that matter, will react to the book dealer who has gone back on his word to sell him the lot. And then King writes, He stepped in, saw Aaron, saw Roland sitting across from Deepno, looking at him steadily, from those frightening blue eyes with the deep crow's feet at the corners. And last of all, he saw Eddie, but Eddie didn't see him. At the last moment, Eddie Dean had lowered his clasped hands between his knees and then lowered his head so his gaze was fixed upon them and the board below them. He was quite literally biting his tongue. There were two drops of blood on the side of his right thumb. He fixed his eyes on these. He fixed every iota of his attention on them because if he looked at the owner of that jolly voice Eddie would surely kill him Kelvin Tower digs in his heels and it's maddening Roland lets Eddie take care of the situation which is difficult for Eddie because all he wants to do is just kill him but he ultimately realizes that he has to be the one to talk Calvin through this because Calvin is an addict after all an addict of hoarding. And who better to convince an addict he has a problem than an addict himself? Calvin finally relents and agrees to sell to the Tet Corporation, which places the Katet ahead of the game, finally, with the upper hand. Immediately after, Roland has to operate on Eddie, extracting the bullet from his leg that he'd received during the general store shootout. Roland and Eddie prepare to meet Stephen King. And King, the writer, not the character, reminds the reader that we are entering Endworld. That is the conclusion of the decades-long story. Eddie slid behind the wheel of Cullum's car, suddenly sure that he would never see Tower or Aaron Deepno again. With the exception of Pere Callahan, or Pierre Callahan, sorry guys, none of them would. The partings had begun. And you, 
He said to them, May you do well. And you, Deepno said. Yes, Tower said, and for once he didn't sound a bit grudging. Good luck to you both. Long days and happy nights or whatever it is. There was just there was just room to turn around without backing, and Eddie was glad. He wasn't quite ready for reverse, at least not yet. As Eddie drove back towards Rocket Road, Roland looked over his shoulder and waved. This was highly unusual behavior for him, and the knowledge must have shown on Eddie's face. It's the end game now, all I've worked for and waited for all the long years. The end is coming. I feel it, don't you? Eddie nodded. It was like that point in a piece of music when all the instruments began rushing towards some inevitable crashing climax. Susanna? Roland asked, still alive. Mia? Still in control. The baby? And coming. Jake? Father Callahan? Eddie stopped at the road, looked both ways, then made his turn. No, he said, from them I haven't heard. What about you? Roland shook his own head. From Jake, somewhere in the future, with just an ex-Catholic priest and a Billy Bumbler for protection, there was only silence. Roland hoped the boy was all right. For the time being, he could do no more. <clears throat> the closing here touches upon a few things. One, Roland's tenderness towards Calvin will never be explained, just like the conversation that they've had will never be explained. But it doesn't have to, because all that we need to know is that a guardian of the rose and his lost long-lost family mythological figure has finally come into his life. Secondly, the closing paragraphs hint at the cycle of Ka that has been woven throughout the series and will be the coda upon which King closes his series when Eddie thinks he wasn't ready to go in reverse. At least not yet. Which is a great line because everything is going to go in reverse. Tenth stanza. Susanna Mio, divided girl of mine. Back in the Dogen, Susanna refuses to help Mia navigate New York of 1999, which includes Japanese tourists who actually say, honestly, he actually say the following, Sally, you take a picture, please. Take a picture of me and my friend? <laughs> so, yeah, uh, King actually wrote that. Um... Though the characterization of the Japanese tourist is lazy, stereotypical, and just a little racist, King does a good job at presenting how overwhelming the city is. Susanna cuts a deal with Mia, which is getting tiring, by the way, with the agreement being Susanna will help Mia to get the Dixie Pig if Mia will tell the truth of who she is and what the baby is. The reason I say it's tiring is because it's the same beat over and over again since the Wolves of the Kala. Susanna agrees that she'll help Mia if she just lets her get through the Battle of the Wolves. She agrees to help Mia get to a hotel if she tells her the truth, which Mia doesn't, and Susanna discovers that Mia is duplicitous, vowing never to help her again, and then reneges on this in the very next scene. And come to think of it, why doesn't Richard Sayer just pick Mia up? Why does Mia have to find her way to the Dixie Pig? They know where she is. They want the baby. They want Mia to get there. Just pick her up. We know the low men have cars. Anyway, Mia takes Susanna to the streets of Fedek, the town that surrounds the castle Discordia. The imagery here is pretty fun. The western saloons juxtaposed against the looming castle. Susanna learns here that Fedek is the place where the wolves had taken the children of the Kala. Mia tells her tale, which includes a visit by Walter, who promises her a child. He says he's acting on behalf of the Crimson King, though it's interesting to wonder if this is true or not. He's such a rabble-rouser that it's very likely he's never even communicated with the Crimson King. 
and serves himself, claiming he's speaking on behalf of the Crimson King. She gets into the nature of this failing world, explaining that the science within the Fetic Dogen made her mortal, and that the science doors built by North Central Positronics can only go one way, rather than the magic doors, which go both ways. And then, at uh, 250 pages in, with the series conclusion in sight, King decides that now is the best time to introduce a prophecy. It's absurd. The only saving grace about it is that it appears um, that the prophecy is simply propaganda by the Crimson King that justifies his actions. Propaganda that Mia falls for, hook, line, and sinker. I honestly don't think that we're supposed to spend a long time thinking about the prophecy as an actual prophecy, and I feel as though reading it as this was prophesized that... Um, you know, Mordred is the one and the whole nine yards and it was written in the stars. I don't think that we're supposed to read it that way. I think that A, uh, the Crimson King told himself this or someone told the Crimson King um, this. And so either way, it, it's all from an unreliable narrator. And I think that that's what we're supposed to take away from it. 11th stanza, the writer. Roland and Eddie approach Stephen King's house and, <clears throat> and they worry that this will result with the fact that there is no God. Um, I'm sorry. They're not necessarily worried that it won't result with the realization that there is no God. They're afraid that it will result with the confirmation that there is God, just that they're worried that God will be a bumbling dope like the rest of us. Eddie suggests getting Moses Carver to merge with the Tet Corp to become a combative force to Sombra nipping North Central in the bud before its science can weaken the magic, therein saving the beams before they begin to break. Roland and Eddie make it to Stephen King, who, are they who they are treating as their maker, which I don't think exactly is the case. As I've stated before, I believe that King is translating their stories. Anyway, the second God sees his creation and sees that his creation has found him, God runs, which is pretty funny if you think about it. Say what you will about the inclusion of Stephen King into his own story. When it comes to this, it's the only part of this book that has any life to it whatsoever. I'm going to get to my issues with Song of Susanna in my final thoughts section of the episode, but for now, let's just say that the idea of Roland having a discussion with Stephen King is just so batshit, you have to give it credit even if you don't like the new direction. But King, the writer, not the character, is smart enough to know that he needs to build in a backdoor to the idea that he's Roland's god. King, the character, admits that he wasn't fully in control writing Roland's story, like he had a life of his own, and it's interesting how Roland scared him so much he had to stop writing him, summed up in this philosophical belief about writing. I think telling stories is like pushing something, pushing back against uncreation itself, maybe, and one day... While you were doing that, you felt something pushing back. Under hypnosis, King reveals that the story comes to him, blows into him from somewhere, and blows out of him through his fingers. He then explained as a child, he was spotted by the Crimson King in the form of red spiders running over a dead chicken in the barn, and was saved by Eddie, who was really Cuthbert, and is finally 100% confirmed here in this scene that... Eddie is recreation of Cuthbert. And I'll get to King a little bit more later in the podcast. Twelfth stanza, Jake and Callahan. 
Callahan and Jake crash back into America in June of 99, and as Callahan is looking for Jake, he hears Jake call out for Oi to watch out, and then describes a thud. It's King again, just teasing the death of this poor little creature. Of course, Oi isn't dead. Yet. And Jake unleashes his wrath upon the driver. Jake and Callahan find Black 13 and manage to place it in storage. It's going to be destroyed when the Twin Towers fall upon it in September 11th. They then prepare for their assault on the Dixie Pig, which they know could be a suicide mission as they're woefully outnumbered. And they both have a feeling that will be full of low men, vampires, and possibly even Flag or the Crimson King. Outside of the Dixie Pig, limousines line the streets, which is beginning to fill up with mist. Inside is full of monsters, and King is setting the stage for a horror show. This is a great scene, guys. Unfortunately, it's all build-up, and we'll have to wait to see what happens in the pages of the Dark Tower. Thirteenth stanza. Heil Mia. Heil Mother. King sweeps the readers through a tour of Susanna's past. So at this point during the story, you have to assume that Susanna is surely going to die. And before long, she's taken through the doors of the Dixie Pig, where King provides a nightmare setting. It's horrific. Beside the stand was a sigh about 60 with white hair combed back from a lean and rather predatory face. It was the face of an intelligent man, but his clothes, the blaring yellow sport coat, the red shirt, the black tie, were those of a used car salesman or a gambler who specialized in rooking small-town rubes. In the center of his forehead was a red hole about an inch across, as if he had been shot at close range. It swam with blood that never overflowed onto his pallid skin. At the tables in the dining room stood perhaps 50 men and half again as many women. Most of them were dressed in clothes as loud or louder than those of the white-haired gent. Big rings glared on fleshy fingers. Diamond eardrops sparked back orange light from the flambeau. There were also some dressed in more sober attire. Jeans and plain white shirts seemed to be the, custom, the costume of choice for this minority. These folken were pallid and watchful, their eyes seemingly all pupil. Around their bodies, swirling so faintly that they sometimes disappeared, were blue auras. To Mia, these pallid, aura-enclosed creatures looked quite a bit more human than the low men and women. They were vampires. She didn't have to observe the sharpened fangs, which their smiles disclosed to know it, but still they looked more human than Sayer's bunch, perhaps because they had once been human. The others, though, their faces are only masks, she observed with growing dismay. Beneath the ones the wolves wear lie the electric men, the robots. But what is beneath these? The dining room was breathlessly silent, but from somewhere nearby came the uninterrupted sounds of a conversation, laughter, and clinking glasses, and cutlery against China. There was a patter of liquid, wine or water, she supposed, and a louder outburst of laughter. A low man and a low woman, he in a tuxedo equipped with plaid lapels and a red velvet bow tie, she in a strapless silver lame evening dress, both of startling obesity, turned to look with obvious displeasure towards the source of these sounds which seems to be coming from behind some sort of swaggy tapestry depicting knights and their ladies at sup. When the fat couple turned to look, Mia saw their cheeks wrinkle upward like the clingy cloth, and for a moment, beneath the soft angle of their jaws, she saw something dark red and tufted with hair. Susanna, was that skin? Mia asked. Dear God, was that their skin? 
Susanna made no reply, not even I told you so or didn't I warn you. Things had gone past that now. It was too late for exasperation, and Susanna felt genuinely sorry for the woman who had brought her here. The scene is so gruesome and surreal. The low men are garish, alien insects scurrying about the room. The animal-headed Tahin stand in the shadows. Ser, the head low man, mocks Mia. It's so nightmarish. It's very, very strange. And then behind that tapestry, Susanna spots an even worse dining room full of mutants and monsters roasting a baby. I, I mean, it's just, this this whole scene, it's so good. I mean, everything that goes down with Dixie Pig now and in the Dark Tower is actually one of the highlights of the entire series because it's just so disturbing. Susanna is so helpless. She's a prisoner of Mia. Mia is a prisoner of the Agents of the Crimson King. And just there's just a collection of monsters. It's so well described. Ka might have chosen that particular moment to puff some errant draft across the dining room of the Dixie Pig and twitch aside the tapestry. It was only there for a second or two, but long enough for Mia to see there was another dining room, a private dining room, behind it. Sitting at a long wooden table beneath a blazing crystal chandelier were perhaps a dozen men and women, their apple doll faces twisted and shrunken with age and evil. Their lips had burst back from a great croggled bouquet of teeth. The days when any of these monstrosities could close their mouths were long gone. Their eyes were black and oozing some sort of noisome tarry stuff from the corners. Their skin was yellowed, scaled with teeth, and covered with patches of diseased-looking fur. Although the velvet swag had been twitched aside but briefly, it had been long enough for both of them to see the rotisserie which had been set in the middle of that table. And... It continues here. Um, yeah, it's just the, the... As she's brought through the, the door, um, everyone is just screaming, Heil Mia, Heil Mother, and it's... Ugh, like the Sorry the word that I keep coming back to is disturbing, but it's, it's very, very disturbing. From there, she's brought into Fedek, where she's outfitted with steel cap that transmits a connection to Mia, and the second of the cliffhangers hits when Mordred is born into the world. And then we have the coda, pages from a writer's journal. This is a fun ending, and well-designed, too. It's a journal from Stephen King detailing the events from 1977 to June 19, 1999. The journal takes us through his career, touching upon the writing and publication of many of his works, including Hearts in Atlantis, It, The Dead Zone, The Stand, Rose Matter, and zeroes in on the importance of The Dark Tower. At one point, it's clear that we're not just reading his journal, but a publication of his journal because there's an editor's note. The question then becomes, why? When the reader arrives at the very last page, it's clear. The newspaper article that is included proclaims that Stephen King has died June 19, 1999 because of a van crash. This coda functions as the last cliffhanger that's needed to be resolved in the next and final installment. One note on the journal, King portrays the forces at work against him first through his dependency on drinking and then later the danger of walking alone on the road. Okay, guys, let's talk about characters a little bit. So first, Roland. For a novel that spends a significant part of itself questioning the reality of these characters, I think that it's important once again to discuss Roland's function as a living myth. Wherever he goes, his mere presence mythologizes the characters and places around him. 
Rosalita, for instance, is Roland's last love, if that's what you want to call her. The last person with whom he can relax, if only for a moment. As for the battle with the wolves, King writes on page 10, Eddie sat back on the porch of the rectory as midnight came and what these folks would ever after call the day of the East Road battle passed into history, after which it would pass into myth, always assuming the world held together long enough for that to happen. In town, the sounds of celebration had grown increasingly loud and feverish until Eddie seriously began to wonder if they might not set the entire high street on fire. And would he mind? Not a whit. Say thanks and you're welcome too. While Roland, Susanna, Jake, Eddie, and three women, sisters of the Roriza, they called themselves, stood against the wolves, the rest of the Califokan had either been cowering back in town or in rice by the riverbank. Yet ten years from now, maybe even five, they would be telling each other about how they'd bagged their limit one day in autumn, standing shoulder to shoulder with the gunslingers. <clears throat> Speaking of myth, King has first teased the larger mythology around the gunslingers with the mention of Arthur Eld first brought up in the Wastelands, but steadily after that. When you have a character who is a knight with a pair of revolvers instead of a sword, and you have a mythological figure named Arthur, it's not hard to see where King is going with this. Throw on the fact that there's a wizard named Merlin around, and King is clearly incorporating elements of Mallory and T.H. White into his own story. Which brings us to Mordred, who will follow Roland's trail in the Dark Tower, and who is intended to slay his father. Unfortunately for Mordred and his masters, this never pans out, but not before his birth drives a shattering wedge into his cotet. After his death, Eddie, Jake, and Oi die, and Susanna, when she has the opportunity, turns her back on her din and exits the world and the story itself. Now, why are you talking so much about Mordred if he doesn't even really appear in this novel? Well, for one, this is where Mordred is first named, and because his mere presence is meant to be a reflection of Roland's inner self. Mia says as much, he'll grow quickly, my darling boy, quicker than human, after his demon nature. He'll grow strong, the avatar of every gunslinger that ever was. Now, guys, let's talk about Stephen King as a character. So after reading about 40-something, 42, 43 publications, after, I don't know, I'm at, at over 100 episodes of this podcast? I think that I might be. I can finally discuss Stephen King's appearance fully as a character in the long-running Dark Tower series. You've heard me on many occasions how put off I was when I first read Song of Susanna and realized that King was a character in the series now. It wasn't a surprise, though. In my review of The Gunslinger, I discussed my concern with the inclusion of the number 19, which was inserted into the narrative after an introduction to his own beliefs on the power of the age of that number. The fact that he had written an essay about being 19 in the introduction to the re-release of the first novel of the series that would end in just over a year from the publication of the re-release, to me, was a sign of the author tipping his hand. But it wasn't until Song of Susanna where he included himself as a character, a move that would prove divisive, to say the least, to his readers. Since I first read the concluding three novels in the Dark Tower series, I've had time to absorb this inclusion and judge it for what it is, not for what it is not. When I was rereading Wolves of the Kala, I couldn't help but feel that as much as I was enjoying it, it was the first Dark Tower novel to contain a been there, done that feeling to it. Kala Bryn Sturgis isn't that different from Mahis, after all. 
Until then, think about the locations that we've been given. Tall, the Mohane, the mountains, the Golgotha, the beach, Lud, the wastelands, Mehis, the Emerald City. All of the settings in each of the books leading into Wolves of the Kala were completely distinct. Yet although Kala Bryn Sturges has its own customs and dialect, like I said, feels similar to Mehis, though not as beautiful. As for the wolves, Roland and his Katet have faced off against robots before with Shardik the Bear and Blaine the Mono, so at least the inclusion of Stephen King brought about something completely new to the narrative. And how it's slowly unveiled is well done. And remember King, our King, the author, isn't stating that the characters that we've been reading are fiction, just that he is translating an epic story that's beaming into his head. So when we revisit the events of Jake's journey to the Manhattan restaurant of the mind and we start to notice differences from what we had read in the wastelands, the changes that we note are a result of three possibilities. Now follow me on this one. Possibility one, Eddie, Jake, and Oi have not entered Jake's world, but the recreated fictional world that we read about in the pages of the wastelands. Second possibility, the Dark Tower beams are falling, and since we're seeing changes and the blending of different realities, why shouldn't the past be any different? Roland had already suggested as such in previous books that the past was changing all the time. Three, the changes are there because one year after the events of Jake in 1977, King publishes the first chapter of The Gunslinger, so the writing itself is reshaping reality. So choose one of these three options. Or choose all three of these options. I think that they are all great explanations for why these changes are happening. King, Stephen King, represents one beam, the rose the other. The objective now branches off to include saving Stephen King or at least keeping him safe. So, like I said, there's been a lot of discussion around Stephen King's inclusion into the story. But as I've talked about throughout each of my reviews is that King does not state that he's the creator of Roland. On a surface level, you can enjoy that. But in Song of Susanna, both King the author and King the character repudiate this idea. I'm gone, or possessed by gone. I don't know which. Maybe there's no difference. King began to cry. His tears were silent and horrible. But it's not Dees. I turned aside from Dees. I repudiate Dees, or Dis. And that should be enough, but it's not. Ka is never satisfied, greedy old Ka. That's what she said, isn't it? What Susan Delgado said before you killed her. Or I killed her, or Gan killed her. Greedy old Ka, how I hate it. Regardless of who killed her, I made her say that. I, for I hate it, so I do. It's, I buck against Ka's goad, and will go, and will until the day I go into the clearing at the end of my path. And still Ka comes to me, comes from me. I translate it, am made to translate it. Ka flows out of my navel like a ribbon. I am not Ka. I am not the ribbon. It's just what comes through me. And I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. The chickens were full of spiders. Do you understand that? Full of spiders. What's notable here is that he's mentioning bits of story that he hasn't written yet. Which to me means that these events have happened to Roland. King just has not immortalized them yet. Maybe that's all that King is. I have spoken at length about Roland as a living myth. Maybe every time King writes Roland's adventures, he's mythologizing the gunslinger, making his legend that much stronger. So that with each subsequent novel that's published, Roland is that much stronger to combat the Crimson King's forces. 
And it's fun to know that everything that King does from Salem's Lot onward is because Roland has told him to. He writes, You'll go on with your life. You'll write many stories, but every one will be on some greater or lesser degree about this story. Do you understand? When King finished The Dark Tower, there was a lot of talk about his retirement. He said so as much. Whether or not that was a publicity ploy or not, it's wrapped up in the story itself. Because, as Roland says to him, this story is the only real story you have to tell. So when he finishes The Dark Tower, Book 7, The Dark Tower, and he announces that he's going to retire, a line like this goes to, uh, to back that up. Okay, guys, let's talk a little bit about Jake. Since The Gunslinger, King has stated that the world has moved on, and with each installment, there's been talk of things winding down. However, with the drawing of the three, Wastelands and the Wolves, our Quartet and their strength have been steadily growing. It's with Song of Susanna where things honestly feel that they've passed a point of no return, with Jake in particular. In Wolves of the Kala, King took pains to illustrate how much of a boy he still was in order to show the tragedy of his loss of childhood, which climaxed with the brutal death of his friend Benny Sleitman. The Jake that occupies the final two books is a different Jake. The one who returned to Midworld in the Wasteland still had a sense of adventure. Though he was rejoining the man who had let him die, there was a feeling of having been saved. This Jake is becoming a little colder, a little older, a little more reflective of the barren, broken world he traverses through. Susanna. I was sure. I was sure. 100% sure. As soon as I heard what this title was, Song of Susanna, I, I was convinced throw all of the money that I had in my savings account, which was probably like five bucks, if that was probably negative at that point in my life. But anyway, anything that I had, I would put good money down on the fact that Susanna Dean of New York was going to die. So it was such an ominous title. I mean, combine that with the fact that she was pregnant with a demon child. I mean, this had to mean, had to mean that she was going to die, especially after the way that Wolves of the Kala had ended. I was convinced that when I sat down to read this book, she was going to die by the end of the book. Now, thankfully, that's not the case. King establishes the journey that has changed these characters. Eddie has been given the ability to create powerful talismanic items. Jake has the touch. And Susanna can see. See so powerfully some of the images she sees actually come to life, like Detta Walker and the Dogen. This is completely in line what we've come to know from her. And we've gotten many scenes through her perspective, seeing Roland deeper than the others. So that completely backs up the fact that she's able to build uh, the Dogen in her mind to keep herself safe from Mia. The fact that Mia becomes so real. Um, it's like Mia the demon is being amplified through Susanna's ability to see and see so well that she's actually able to create. So um, I don't really have much more to say about Susanna, but I do have a lot more to say about Mia. Mama ma Mia. When it comes to the book, it's here where Mia becomes more of a character rather than just a mysterious, dangerous figure as she was in Wolves of the Kala. In previous Stephen King novels in which a character was possessed, the possessing entity has been evil through and through. When Tack possessed Seth Garin in The Regulators, there were no shades of ambiguity to Tack. 
Similarly, when Mr. Gray possessed Jonesy and Dreamcatcher, Mr. Gray was ruthless. However, King makes a point to illustrate that Mia isn't just a monster, no matter how monstrous she might have seen when she first appeared in Wolves of the Kala, eating rats, frogs, and pigs raw. In Wolves of the Kala, she was purely the other, something to be feared. But with Song of Susanna, we get to know the character who's inhabiting Susanna's body. And she's a complex character whose presence to Susanna is a threat, but is still a character who is flawed, vulnerable, and driven by desire not to harm Susanna, but to simply be a mother. At first, she claims to be a demon elemental, the same one that had sex with both Roland and Susanna. Mia then informs us that she's not the elemental of the beam, not the demon from the Oracle, so really... What's the point of even suggesting that, only to confirm that this isn't the case a hundred pages later? With so much story left to tell, with so much limited time left with our main characters, the lying of a tertiary character feels like King spinning his wheels. She tells us she could wander the land, sleeping with the DePappy brother, for instance, and then she tells us she's stuck in Fetic as if it's an afterthought. If King is going to introduce a character that's going to dump mythological exposition important to the well-being of our characters, it would help for her to have a bit more substance, even if she is by nature an insubstantial being. I'm going to be honest here, guys. Mia represents the worst aspects of this series. Nothing about this character makes any sense, and in a series that includes robot bears, talking raccoons, living trains, and magic doorways, it's really saying something. I read a meme or a criticism a few years ago about Battlestar Galactica that answered the question of how fast the Galactica can travel. The answer is the speed of plot. Mia and everything surrounding her feels to fall under the exact same logic. Roland's sperm is stolen by one demon, so another demon can use it to carry a child to term. How? Because the plot demands an explanation. Another demon can be turned into a human being to raise that child. How? Because plot says so. The same demon woman is physically carrying this child to term, but Susanna is really the one pregnant. What? Don't ask. It's just the plot. Oh, and she can grow white legs onto Susanna. What made the first few books work was that King established rules. Yes, the rules are breaking with the end of the universe, but there's still something that we can grab onto. The world is growing, and time is falling apart. It's weird, but okay. There's a crazy-ass tower that needs saving. Got it. This is a world where there is uh, magic, but also the technological ruin of an advanced science. Neat! That I can accept. And yes, I understand that Mia technically falls under this last category, but she isn't being applied to the established rules. Rather, the established rules are being rewritten to explain her nonsensical story. And then Eddie, I want to talk a little bit about Eddie just very, very briefly. As I've stated before, Eddie is the reincarnation of Cuthbert, which is explicitly, like I said earlier, referenced when Eddie and Roland pass through the door into Maine. Roland took a moment to be proud of Eddie, King writes. He was Cuthbert Allgood all over again. Cuthbert to the life. Now, guys, let's just talk about the fact that this is the twinner to the drawing of the three. If Wolves of the Kala purposefully, like I said earlier that Wolves has a been there, done that. A lot of that is on purpose, I should have added. And I talked about that in Wolves of the Kala review. But if Wolves of the Kala mirrors Wizard and Glass, then Song of Susanna is the mirror to the drawing of the three. 
Just look at Susanna's story. Aldetta Holmes has been abducted from one world and brought into another. Here, Susanna Dean is abducted um, from that world and brought into the first. Drawing of the three saw her become whole. Song of Susanna sees her shattered at the mercy of a, of a new personality. Meanwhile, Roland and Eddie are once again paired with each other and find themselves in almost exactly the same situation they found themselves in Drawing of the Three, in tight quarters in a shootout against Enrico Balazar's men. Okay, guys, now it is time for Stephen Kingisms. Dear Heart, so I've mentioned this before, not as much as I probably should have in all of my reviews, but Dear Heart is Stephen King's most oft-used phrase when it comes to a loved one. Number two is the villain overtaking the character's body. Mia's possession of Susanna is similar to Mr. Gray's possession of Jonesy and Tack's possession of Seth Guerin. Number three is the inner safe room. Susanna has her Dogen. Jonesy had his office in the Tracker Brothers Depot. Seth Guerin had his hiding place from Tack as well. And then we have our J.R.L. Tolkien reference. John Collins' house is described as a hobbit hole. Then we have some Easter eggs, uh, the first of which is the stand. Mia states that because of the machines that hold up the beams are falling, it's causing everything to slip. And one result is that plagues are decimating entire worlds. And I think that that's a shout out to Captain Trips. Number two, Garland and Eyes of the Dragon. When talking to Calvin Tower, he mentions the land of Garland, where Roland's grandfather had ventured to slay a dragon, but Roland states that the final dragon of that part of the world had already been killed by a king who would later be murdered. This is the story of King Roland from Eyes of the Dragon. Garland had first been mentioned in that book, and it was rumored that this was the land Flag had come from. Number three, Pain Rises. Roland tells Eddie, when operating on him, that pain rises. You have to catch it by biting down, which is why he gives him the belt. This is exactly the same thing that Ted Brodigan says to Carol Gerber in Low Men in Yellow Coats. Number four, black auras. Eddie sees a black aura surrounding Roland, which is similar to the auras Callahan sees, and specifically the black death bags that Ralph and Lois had spotted in Insomnia. The fact that Roland and Eddie can both see it is evidence that they are both on higher levels of the tower. And spiders. With the story of King in the barn full of spiders, King labels the Crimson King as the Lord of Spiders, which seems to tie together the various spider creatures that have run amok throughout his bibliography. Okay, guys, so let me get into my final thoughts on the Song of Susanna. So, I don't like it. <laughs> Guys, really, it's just all about wheels spinning. Um, this book never gains any traction. I mean, everything's in motion, but it's never going anywhere. Susanna goes through the same beat, um, beat by beat with Mia throughout the entire novel. Susanna could have exited from the collis straight to the Dixie Pig, and nothing will have changed. And, like I said earlier, even if she does materialize in front of the Tet building and is able to communicate with Richard Sayer in the hotel, why doesn't Sayer just send someone to pick her up? Why is Mia in charge of getting Susanna to the Dixie Pig? Then, we have not one, but multiple deus ex machinas. Uh, just these ghosts in the machine that come out of nowhere to help our characters. The first of which is the Scrimshaw Turtle, all right, which is able to um, magically 
help people uh, or help uh, Susanna by kind of brainwashing people that comes out of nowhere. And the other one is John Collum, a character who, again, comes out of nowhere to help Roland and uh, Eddie. I've already talked about Mia. Like, Mia is just a nonsensical character, and it's completely devoted to her and her backstory, where she's telling us one thing, and then, no, actually, this didn't happen to me. This is what happened to me. I mean, this, like I said, we don't have many pages left. If you're going to introduce something, that's okay. You can introduce something, but make sure that it counts for something. The fact that we get one story about Mia, only to find out later that's a lie, it doesn't add to the story whatsoever. It just takes away time that could have been spent on our characters that we know by now. And then so much happens by telling rather than showing. Mia tells us her story. Let's see her story. Let's see it un, you know, uh, unfold. Um, Moses Carver. Like, we're told about Moses Carver. I don't really know Moses Carver as a character. I mean, he's just, he's someone that's been referenced and there's just so much telling. And there's just a lot of repetition that fills up space that just doesn't propel the book forward. I've already talked about the repetitiveness of Susanna, but then there's also Eddie, Eddie and Roland, who have not one but three conversation scenes inside three different little main houses. One's nice, but three? We're only one book away from the Dark Tower, guys. One book away. We've waited years to explore Endworld. And when we should be heading into unknown imaginative territory, we are given a real estate tour through Maine. And New York, for that matter. Why couldn't Mia have taken Susanna through a door to Fedic? All the scenes with Susanna are just so static. What if she had just been taken to Fedic? This nightmarish world deep in Endworld with the eye of the Crimson King burning in the horizon. What if King had built a story of her first imprisoned, planning an escape, then enacting that harrowing escape, ruthlessly tearing down the Tahin and the Kantoi that get in her way? It would be a great way to reinforce the danger of Susanna, with Dedo Walker riding shotgun, showing that not having legs doesn't make her any less dangerous, or perhaps makes her even more dangerous. And then, just when she's about to reach a door to her escape, she collapses because Mordred at that moment decides he's going to come into this world. Tell me, tell me that wouldn't be better. With salvation just within her grasp, she's then come upon by the remaining low men and the vampires and the doom bots that are there and then carted off to a nightmare operating room. The reason I say this isn't to just Monday morning quarterback the story because... But because this version would have Susanna actually doing something, it would be propelling the story and the character forward. If we were trapped in Fedic along with Susanna, we would learn about it through showing, not telling, which is all that Mia does. Instead, we are given static scenes that go nowhere with her on a bench. Then a static scene that goes nowhere with her on a hotel bed. Then we get a static scene in a fake flashback in a town that we don't really spend any time in. But it's described so well, and I want to spend time in that town. I want to get to know Fedek, so actually give us something happening there. Not something that is just us talking about something that happened there. Missed opportunities in this book. Missed opportunities galore, guys. Um, this is not a story. This is stuff happening. 
there's a difference. Um, and even the things that are happening, I can't even say that they're happening. What works here? I would say I just gave the the whole Eddie and Roland scenes a lot of crap. But what works here is the shootout in Maine. It's done well. It shows Roland and Eddie. It's a great juxtaposition to the drawing of the three scene. They're, they're partners at this point. Uh, they both trust each other with the, their lives. They're showing how deadly they can be. It's a nice conversation that they have with John Cullum. I like all that. That's fine. Okay, that's fine. And then the conversation with Stephen King, like I said, is just so crazy. It's just so crazy. Um, it works. It's new. It's different. I'm fine with that. Oh, God. But everything with... Uh, Everything with Susanna just sucks. Okay, guys. Um, I feel bad talking so ill of Song of Susanna. I wanted to like it so much more because, like I had said, when I started rereading it, I didn't remember much about it. And I remember it because there's not much to remember. You get hundreds of pages of one character that we've never met before lying, ultimately, to find out what her actual origin is. <sighs> anyway, so this is it. Until next week. Uh, and next week, guys, uh, next week we make it. We're going to walk the steps to the tower together after all these years, after all these centuries. So until then, guys, may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast. <laughs>